0: Father, we get a sense of what goes on inside of those who write our hymns when we think of your servant Dan sitting down and out of the depth of his heart bringing forth the words for the hymn we've just sung. Father, we have a lot of reason, each and every one of us, to come to you this morning with grateful hearts, to say thank you to you, Lord, because you have loved us and provided for us in the midst of what you call a perverse and crooked generation. You've helped us to walk with you. You're helping us keep our focus on you. And you're going to love us all the way to the very end of this life and into eternity. What an act of grace and what an act of mercy. Father, I pray as we go through our worship service this morning, and particularly as we focus on your word from Paul and from the Philippian church, that you'll help us get a sense of that love and how you want us to love others. Father, you've called us not to be hard-hearted. You've called on us, dear God, to have the eyes to see the spiritual and physical needs of other people. And your Holy Spirit is quickening us so we can do just that. I pray, Father, you'd help us as a congregation and help your people around the world to be able to look outside of the buildings in which they meet today And to see the world around us and to have the eyes of Jesus. And to be able to minister spiritually and physically. I want you to forgive us, Lord. But before you forgive us, I want you to bring us under personal conviction. For if we're living just for ourselves and not for you, I want you, dear God, to get our attention this morning if you would. And help us to confess to you that's not what you want for us and for our lives. Help us, dear God, to come to the realization that what you want us to do is to live for other people and to love other people. And, Dear God, if we have excluded people from that love circle, I pray this afternoon you'd cause us to sit down and reconsider and open our lives back up to them. This thing we call Christianity, Lord, this thing that's called the church, is more than an institution. Father, it's your extension in the world in which we live. You give us a place to come together, to learn of you, to worship, to encourage, to love, And then you want us to take it outside the walls of the church. And Father, you give every one of us that opportunity. The world we live in is in such need, dear God. So many people do not know you. So many people do not know your word. They live in that kind of spiritual darkness. And so many who even call themselves Christians are not living the way you have called on us to live. I pray, dear God, for the convicting power of your Holy Spirit to fall on this nation. And I pray that it would begin right here, in our church and in our community and in our state, And I pray, dear God, that you'd get our attention as a country. I fear, dear Lord, that you've lifted your hand from us. And I pray for your mercy. And I pray for revival in the United States of America. I pray, dear God, that you'd raise up not just in our church, but in your church here and all around this country, those who would serve you as ministers, and those who would serve in other areas of ministry in the church. And I pray, dear God, that you would raise up those who would go across the sea and be involved in missions in other lands. I pray, dear God, for a renewal in your church, and pray you'd bring forth workers. such a good thing to be together, Lord, to have a place to come and to be shoulder to shoulder with other believers. Thank you for the opportunity you give us this morning. Thank you for your love through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our shepherd, the Savior of our life. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're studying this morning Philippians, the second chapter. We're going to pick up where we left off last week with the 19th verse, and we're going to study through the 30th verse. For those of you who are visiting with us for the first time, I'd encourage you to Open the Bible you'll find in front of you or share one with the person sitting next to you and open your Bibles to Philippians and once you've opened to Philippians to follow along as I read and then keep your Bible open in front of you so you can see why I say what I say as I move through the passage. Philippians, the second chapter, and I'm going to begin with... The 19th verse. But let's pray first. Father, I ask for special help as we come to your word. I ask you to use your word to speak to us as you have to generations past. I pray, dear God, that you would grab hold of our hearts and renew our minds. And I pray, O oh Lord, that we would benefit from this time together, that we might be encouraged, each and every one of us, to live our life more fully for you. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Probably you've never heard the name Merrill Frost. You know, we might want to turn a little air on. Would that be okay with everybody? Somebody? Harold, can you reach that? If they've got a lock on it, go ahead and just break it. (laughs) The name Harold Frost. Harold was born a Canadian. He came into the United States of America and became a nationalized citizen. And then in the very early 1940s, Harold joined the student body at Dartmouth College. He also joined the football team and played a couple of seasons for them. He was a 160-pound running back who did amazing things and got national attention. But because the Second War was raging, and because he really loved our country, Merrill decided to withdraw from college and go in the military. He joined the Army Air Corps, went through basic training, and was shipped out to North Africa. While in North Africa, he was on a flight over the Balkan Islands and the plane that he was in crashed. Seven of the eight people on board died. He survived the crash, and they describe his wounds as having been burned on his face and his neck and his upper body. Interestingly enough, he got well and returned to active duty. When he was finally dismissed from the Army, he came back to college at Dartmouth. This time he came back and he played football as a quarterback, known as a triple threat, and led that team to an amazing season, two seasons in fact. His senior year, 1945 1946 season, he received an award the most courageous athlete of the year in the United States of America. It's a pretty good reward. He's known for something else. Apparently he's the man who coined the little phrase that says Behind every good man is a good did just the ladies answer that. (laughs) Is a good woman. Now, I don't know if that's true, but everybody gives him credit for that. So, obviously, he'd gotten married and had a wife who was supporting him through all of that. I want to take what Merrill said, and I want to expand it logically. Anytime that you see someone, male or female, who's doing a really good job with the gifts and talents that God has given them, if you look right behind them... As in Merrill's case, you don't only see his wife, you see an entire football team, you see a coaching squad. You always see other people who are supportive. And when people really succeed in life, isn't it because they often have a supporting team of very capable people? That's what makes it work. At the previous church I've for many years, not often because I think the attention ought to go to Jesus, but every now and then it would just strike me and I would say to the church, you know, you all have hired an unbelievable staff and they make me look good. And they did. They were all capable people. All of them called by God and all of them pulling together in the same direction. We were all of one heart. So, as I approach the passage for today, what I see in the passage is I see an encouragement for all of us, no one individual, but all of us as a group to stand together and for us to work together to do the very things that God has called us to do. And the foremost thing is to love other people. I want you to look at the passage, and I'll read it for us. And I want you to listen carefully, and then please keep your Bibles open and follow along as I move through the passage. I'm reading from Philippians, the second chapter, beginning with the 19th verse. Listen as God speaks to us. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will generally be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interest, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he serves with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Ephroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold him Men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You know, as I read these words, I keep remembering Paul's in jail. And if I were in jail in those days and the kind of primitive jails I had, I'd have an awful hard time thinking about you all. I'd probably just be thinking about me. And then if I knew that they were going to make a decision that I had no influence over about whether I would live or die, I'd be pretty focused on that also. But that's not where Paul is. You can see the maturity of Paul in every word he utters. Because the focus is not on him, the focus is on two men that he mentions in this part of his letter, and his focus is on the church at Philippi. I want you to look at 19 through 24, where he talks about sending Timothy. You remember who Timothy was? Timothy was a young man that God had touched. The way he touched him was through his grandmother and through his mother He was a covenant child. He was raised up in the faith. He was raised up hearing about Jesus all the days of his life. So when the Holy Spirit moved on him, it was quite natural for him to respond. Your elders and I just recently heard the testimony of someone who's joining our church. And as we heard that testimony, they said, You know, I can't pinpoint a day when I came to know Jesus. I've just always known about him. Timothy. I want you to know that's the way to do it. That way you don't have some of the hurt in life. All these wonderful experiences about people who have been off and had all kinds of problems and then come to faith, they've got all kinds of scars. The way to come to faith is like Timothy did, and to grow up in that faith and to know God and to know Jesus and to feel the moving of the Holy Spirit in your daily life. So Timothy's an interesting young man. If you look at the passage, it says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy, Paul speaking, to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. He's not thinking about his own condition. He's thinking about the condition of the people in the city of Philippi who are in the church that he helped plant. We have a sin in many of our lives and I want to talk to you about it for a minute. It's a disabling sin. It's not the sin that is always so obvious that people get excited about trying to deal with it. It comes from the original sin of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve thought about what they wanted. They did not think about what God wanted. So, when Adam and Eve made the decision to disobey God, quite simply, they did not consider Him and they did what their own passions and desires dictated. The residual of original sin is in every one of us. Everyone. We were born with it. Now, by God's grace, whether raised a covenant child or whether we come to faith later in life, when the Holy Spirit starts to dwell in us, there's a heart tran- transplant. Cooley and DeBakey didn't invent that, by the way. There's a heart transplant that takes place, and they and you and I become new people. Now, for the first time, there's a tension inside of us with that original sin. And what scripture teaches, and Paul teaches it over and over again, is that you and I are to love other people, not just ourselves. We're to serve other people, not just ourselves. And what that original sin does to a Christian is it cripples us. Because it causes us instinctively to think about self. To want to take care of self. To want to serve self. And we do that so very often just naturally to the exclusion of other people. You know why the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not having a greater effect on our culture? We're not living our faith. The way God designed the church and the spreading of the gospel is for you and I to be so captivated by what God has done for us that it just kind of oozes out of us all day long and other people see it and are attracted to it. And the substance of that is loving other people. But when we take what we have and what we are and we devote it to self, all of that gets negated. And I think you can look around at our culture and see what's happened to us. I want you to stop and think a minute. Here's this young man, and he's a young man, Timothy, who has been walking with Paul, ministering with Paul, part of that ministry. Now, why would he go with Paul? What caused him to leave home and to want to be involved in that ministry? Just his attraction to Paul? He may have been attracted. Paul was a really neat guy, but I don't think it's that alone. Something else had happened inside of Timothy. Here goes one of those examples that you got to follow closely. A few weeks back, we had the garage door open at our house in Columbia. My wife thinks a mouse ran in which meant that she no longer cared to go in the garage. So we got some of these strips that you put out and you put them on the ground and in theory, rodents and other things run across them, get stuck, can't get off of them. We won't go into what a cruel death that is. Well, we put some of those out. <clears throat> we came home the other night into our Columbia house and. When we opened the garage door, there was a bird on one of them. Now, we're pretty sure that bird has a nest in the garage, and we kind of leave a door open so the bird can come and go. But the little brown bird had apparently landed with both feet, and then had tried to get the feet loose by flapping wings. And the tips of the wings got stuck. And then the wings got stuck. And then the feathers in the wings got overlapped and all that glue. And then the little bird's face on this side got stuck. The bird was still alive. It must have happened pretty recently. I was about to walk out, had a commitment So I did, I know none of you fellows have ever done this. I said, Linda, would you take care of that? We talked for a moment and I said to her, see if you can somehow get the bird free. If not, I will dispose of the bird when we get home, which is not something I wanted to do. And I left and went about what I had to do. And Linda called and got some advice from a veterinarian hospital And she got a particular kind of soap and she sat down with that little bird and she started taking the soap and mixing it in with that glue substance which neutralized it and started putting a cloth between the bird and the glue surface as she got the bird free until she finally got the bird out of the glue. Then she took that same soap and she tediously worked with the legs and with the wings and with the head and rinsed the bird and then did it a second time to get all the glue out of the bird's feathers. When I got home, she had the bird in a shoebox. We had no idea if the bird would live or die. The next morning, (laughs) Linda got up and went right straight to her shoebox. And she opened the shoebox and the bird startled her and flew out of and flew up first to the ground and then up onto a curtain rod. We opened the garage door and turned the lights out in the house and turned the lights on in the garage. And the bird flew to the light and soared out of the garage out to a tree. You and I were born sinners. You and I in life, without ever even thinking about it, have gotten stuck in sin. And the more we try to overcome it on our own, the less likely we are to do it. And the more we become encumbered spiritually. And our only hope, only hope, is that by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit is sent from God and comes on us and starts to wash us clean as the Lord Jesus' blood is shed over us. And folks, that is the only hope. Now let me tell you why I tell you that in the context of the passage. Something happened in the life of Timothy to change his life to cause him not just to get up and go to work every day, not to want to just amass material things or to be a popular or important person. Something else happened in him, and what happened in him is he came to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior, and he realized what a miracle that was. And he developed a passion to tell other people about what God had done for him. And he was attracted to a man named Paul who had a ministry. So he attached himself, and Paul, under the power of the Holy Spirit, embraced this young man, and they became two in ministry. You know what makes a strong church? I promise you, it's not who you call to be a senior pastor. He's a very important ingredient. It's all of us together when we together have one mind and start working to do the very things that God has called us to do. And that happens when you and I have a passion to tell other people about the miracle that's been worked in our life, that we have come to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior by grace, not by struggling and trying to do it ourselves, because of his mercy and because of his love. Paul goes on in those first verses, 19 through 24, and he said, in essence, you know, I looked around here in Rome and I looked at the church and there's no one of kindred spirit with me here except Timothy. That's enough to break your heart. To think that there's a whole body of people who call themselves the Christian church in Rome and their pastor says of them, There's nobody else here of kindred spirit. You know how you get to be of kindred spirit? You stop and think about how you came to faith. And you relive that, not just once, not just occasionally, but you rethink it, what a miracle has been worked in your life that you would even sit here today and want to worship a God who's a God of grace and a God of mercy. And when you start to do that, you become of kindred spirit. But if you have some other agenda, it won't work. And Paul looked at his church, and don't you think he didn't just weep. Here he is in chains for the faith, seeing people who are going about their daily business and really not caring about the gospel. It must have broken his heart. You want to be a strong church? We do, don't we? The way we get there is fundamentally by knowing that we came to faith by the grace of God and wanting to tell other people about it. If you look on down at verses 25 through 28, you see the story of Ephroditus. What we know about him was that he was in Philippi And the people in Philippi sent him to Paul to minister to Paul because they were concerned about Paul being in captivity. It kind of gives you the sense of the heart those people in Philippi had, particularly in contrast to the ones in Rome. You start to see a church that was a healthy church. So they sent someone to care for Paul. And here Paul, not thinking about himself again, but thinking about them is going to send that messenger back to them because Paul wants to hear how things are with them. you realize how selfless Paul was? How much like Jesus in this way he was? He really genuinely cared about the people in the church in Philippi. And he says of this man, Ephroditus, he says, you know, we're one in the faith, meaning He and I have had the same spiritual experience. You know that's true of us. Those of us who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we have something in common. By the way, I sure hope you guys like me. I do. You know why? We're going to spend a long time together, aren't we? That's what that faith yields. We're going to spend eternity together. And Paul is saying of this servant, he said, I'm going to send him back to you because we are kindred spirits, because this man does have the same faith that I have, and we have shared that. He says, secondly, because we've served together. It's something that happens when you start to serve together. I've watched our church, and I'm very excited about some of the ways we serve. The ministry that Buddy heads... So many of you have been involved in one way or another in this ministry. You've gotten involved and you're seeking to be used by God. Something happens when you give yourself away. Have you noticed that? This last week, some of our ladies went to one one of our senior homes and spent time with some of the residents there and, and loved on them. Something beautiful comes out of giving yourself away. You know when else that happens? When you walk in the grocery store, by the way, I've noticed that if I want a whole prayer meeting, I just got to go to the grocery store. That's where you all are. <laughs> but in the grocery store, in a pharmacy, wherever you are, if you give yourself away, something beautiful happens. You want to stop having some of the tension you have. You want to stop with some of the Challenges that are going to undo you. Give yourself away. And the things that you would see through introspection won't look nearly as significant because you're looking at other people and involved with them. Such a simple formula to overcome some of that anxiety that attacks all of us. Quit trying to do something here and do something out there that's meaningful, and God will use it. Well, that's who this guy was. The third thing Paul said about him, he said, he's also a fellow soldier. You know what that means? That Ephroditus has realized that he's part of something much bigger than himself, and he's found his place in it, and he's now in lockstep with the ministry that Paul has And that he's in lockstep with it, being obedient as a soldier and doing what's expected of him. There's a discipline involved in being a Christian, folks. There's a stepping aside from yourself to the degree that you start to care about this larger thing called the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And who you are isn't quite so important. But being a part of this larger ministry becomes the important thing. So what God is calling on us to do is to be more like Timothy and more like Ephroditus. If you look at the last couple of verses, Paul has already mentioned back in 27, for indeed he, Ephroditus, was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. Not only on him, but also on me, because I didn't want to see him sick, Paul's saying, and I sure didn't want to see him die. And now in 29 and 30, he says in 30, because he came so close to death for the work of Christ. Have you ever been in jeopardy because of your faith? Not many of us. I told you last week about a Romanian minister that I met who had suffered and been tortured. <clears throat> first place I preached in Romania was a church in a small village. The church had about 220 or 30 people in it. It was packed. Now, you've got to remember, communism had just fallen, and there was this new breath of freedom of religion, and people were turning out. And I was invited to go speak, and when I got there, I was overwhelmed by the number of people. There were people sitting on my right and people sitting on my left and people sitting out in front of me. And there was a chair right there on the corner of the chancel. And a man was sitting there in a plain blue suit and a plain blue tie. And he never took his eyes off of me. And I knew he was sitting there. At the end of the service, I greeted folks and he didn't come out and shake my hand. A couple of weeks later toward the end of our trip there, and none of us on this team had gone back to the same place twice, I was told in the, in the um, team meeting that morning that they wanted me to go back to that church. And I, I didn't understand that, but I went back because I was asked to, and I preached. He was sitting right there in that same seat. And I looked at him, and I saw him again, and I thought, I'm going to get to know the man. There was just something about... His presence that got my attention. At the end of the service, I was at the back door shaking hands with folks, and someone stepped up and said, we'd like you to meet our former pastor. He's still seated in the sanctuary. And I went out, went back in after I got through greeting other people, and I sat down with him. And he said to me very simply, I want you to be my pastor. Well, let me tell you, that man was retired because he'd been tortured so much he couldn't function. He'd been physically and emotionally beaten up for years by the communists. And he asked me to be his pastor, and I told him I couldn't do that. That surprise you? I told him the truth. I said, I've never been where you've been. I have never walked where you have walked. It's been a cakewalk for me for 40 years compared to what he had been through. He had risked his life for the gospel. When I read this passage, Paul says, Ephroditus risked his life for the gospel. You know what that means? It means being willing to be inconvenienced, It means being willing to get out of the little rut that so many of us live in and living by faith, allowing God to have the freedom to do things with us that would not otherwise happen. It means trusting him with our money and trusting him with our talents and trusting him with our energy It means being part of his ministry and going where he wants us to go and doing what he wants us to do. Isn't that what Jesus did? He came at the risk of his life. And he served among us. Never took his eye off the goal. A good soldier. A true servant. God with us. And he lived and he died. That he might live again. That you and I might live again. Amen? Can you hear the heart of the Lord saying come be more like Jesus? be conformed to his image and have his heart and have his mind. Where's your heart? What's your mind full of? During our communion service, I want you to join with me if you would and ask yourself, where is my heart? Where have I invested my heart and where is my mind? What am I filling it with? And remember Paul. And remember that for the church to succeed, it's all of us together being surrendered and serving. Let's pray together. Father, it's an opportunity that you've given us to come together and to hear your word preached and to gather around this table, and with the same power, dear God, you'll use these sacraments to minister to us just like you do your word. That's my prayer, Father, that as we continue in worship, that your Holy Spirit would grasp every one of us and draw us closer to you. Father, please set these elements aside, that they might be now used to minister to us on your behalf, and to help us get in touch with what you've done for us. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Beloved in the Lord, hear what gracious words our Savior Christ saith unto all who truly turn to him. Come to me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest unto your soul. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find that rest. I am the bread of life, and he that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out every time I read that in the Gospel of John or read it when we share it together, I want to say, thank you, Lord, because I sure must disappoint you and you don't throw us away. You still love us. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. What a promise. Our hymn is numbered 324. 324 and we're going to sing the first and second verses let's stand and sing together I'd like to invite you to come to this table, but there are some things you need to hear before you come to the table. One is that to come to the table, you don't have to be part of our denomination or a member of our church, but you do need to be someone who has professed Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and have joined a Bible-believing church and are in good standing with that church. So you're invited to come if those things are true. There's a warning in Scripture that you and I need to take very seriously. And the warning says that if we have sin in our life and we're not dealing with that sin, that we should not take communion because it is truly a slap in the face of the Lord. That instead we need to repent of that sin. And you can do that by sitting right where you are and calling out with a sincere heart and saying, Lord, forgive me for the sin of my life. And then making a personal commitment to him to turn from that sin. And if you go through that process in a genuine way, I want you to know this table has been set for you. Because that's where all of us are. Repentant sinners. If you need to let the let the elements go by today, forget about the people next to you. Let the element go by, and when you leave church, get whatever it is straightened out in your life. So the next time you have an opportunity to commune with the Lord in this way, that you'll be able to do it. The instructions that I would offer you are very simple the elders of the church that God has called out to be our leaders, they're going to come up and they're going to bring the elements to you. And as they pass them to you, if you take the element and hold it, and then we together as the family of God will take each of the elements. Go back with me. Thursday night of Holy Week, the last week that Jesus spent on earth he sends some of his disciples and said, there's a room in this crowded city that's already been set aside. Go to that room and prepare the Passover. They went, all of them, Jesus and all 12 disciples, into that upper room, and they sat around a table, and they shared together in the Passover a remembrance of how by grace, God had passed over his people in Egypt while the firstborn of all of the Egyptians and all of their animals died. And as they're getting ready to do that remembrance, Jesus takes the loaf of bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body, which is for you. So you take and eat of this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after they had had that Passover meal, Jesus took a common cup. And as he began to pass it from one disciple to another, he said, a new covenant has been poured out for you with my blood. You take and drink of this in remembrance of me. And folks, that's what he wants us to do today. He gave himself for us that we might be here today and see the benefit of his life and his death and his resurrection. as you read through scripture and you look at the life of our Lord his entire life was focused on one purpose to do the very thing that God had sent him to do and that was to give himself away to not live for himself but to give himself for us I encourage you to take this and eat of it in remembrance of him your brothers This is our Lord's blood which has been shed for you, so take and drink of it in remembrance of him. This is our Lord's blood which has been shed for you, so take and drink of it in remembrance of him. Scripture teaches that Jesus came to this world to be a sacrificial lamb, to die an atoning death, not for his sin, but for your sin and mine. As he hung on the cross, he was completing exactly what he had come to do. No one took his life. He gave his life. That as his blood was shed, you and I might be forgiven and have a place eternally with God. Drink of this in remembrance of what he's done. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for letting us come to this table. Thank you for including us in your family. Thank you for all the potential that exists today and eternally for us. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hymn number 324, and we're going to sing the third and fourth verses. Number 324. Let us stand.